Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. Imagine when you die, you become a ghost, and then entertain the idea that you may haunt your family home. A place so familiar you could close your eyes and glide your hand on the walls and find your way from place to place, completely on instinct and memory. According to what we've always thought, if someone else passed who was attached to that home, they may also somehow end up haunting it. And you would know they were there, right? Their presence would be as indelible as the walls you knew so well and the memories you created within them. What if that person was your mother or your daughter? Surely you would together haunt your family home completely aware of the other, staying in the space for whatever reason kept you, but together. But what if that isn't the case? What if you could go decades, if not more, haunting the same place with someone you knew and loved incredibly in day-to-day life but not knowing they were there? You would tread the same steps, see the same living folks, watch the same sunsets from the same windows, but think you were alone. I never considered this a possibility in all my experiences with the spirit world, and yet our next location had me questioning everything I thought I knew. Come with me to Little Rock, Arkansas, as we explore the Fee House. I'm Amy Bruni, and this is Haunted Road. Today, the fee house sits empty, its owners living in the property's carriage house while they renovate the historic home in Little Rock, Arkansas. But put more accurately, the home, which has sat empty for more than two decades, is only empty of living people. Evidence of the dead fills the halls of the fee house. Unexplained noises and disembodied footsteps come from afar. Voices echo from empty rooms saying hello and welcome in some places. In others, the messages are darker. He's in the attic, investigators have heard. Others have picked up voices saying, help us, we are lost. But who is lost and how did they get there? The answer could very well be in the Fee House's 130-year history, which includes public scandal, traumatic injuries and deaths, an allegedly cursed family, and nowadays reports of faces appearing in the windows of a home where no one lives. It wasn't always this way. Well, the Fee House wasn't always haunted, as far as we know. But it has, it seems, always had its share of strange and unusual stories. Built in 1890, the Fee House is a Victorian-style home in the Governor's Mansion district of Little Rock, what was in its day the most fashionable and desirable part of town to live in. From the 1880s to the 1920s, the city's most affluent residents built homes in the neighborhood. Though the house is known today as the Fee House, it was actually built for the Hafer family, though not much is known about those owners or the owners who followed immediately after. The Fee House is a two-story Victorian plus an attic. It has six bedrooms and three bathrooms with nearly 4,000 square feet inside, including a kitchen, library, parlor, and a great foyer with a large open staircase with a carved wooden banister wrapping around a landing that looks down into the first floor. The Fees were actually the third family to own the building, purchasing the house in 1907. At the time they moved into the home at 1900 Broadway Street in Little Rock, they had already seen their fair share of scandal. 
Frank F. Fee bought the Fee House for himself, his wife Mamie, whose real name was Mary Rose, and their three children, five-year-old Frank Jr., three-year-old Catherine, and infant son Edward. Frank was a prominent businessman in Little Rock who was a 32nd degree mason and a member of many elite social clubs in the city. Fee's father was a Civil War soldier and his mother was the granddaughter of a famed Revolutionary War general. Frank showed talent at an early age, graduating from high school at just 13 and from Oberlin College at 18, then being admitted to the bar at only 21 years old. He quickly made a fortune in the lumber industry, parlaying his love of nature into work in forestry and then in the manufacture of hardwood lumber, eventually becoming president of the Fee Creighton Lumber Company. Frank had been married to Mamie for seven years when they moved into what became known as the Fee House, but he had been married previously. Frank and his first wife Nellie eloped in October 1882 when her parents disapproved of the match, saying that at 18 she was too young to get married. The pair had at least two children. Laura was born in 1884 and Herbert was born in 1888, though some sources say they had at least one, if not two, more daughters. Frank became close to Mamie Cohn while he was still married to Nellie and while Mamie was married to a lumber merchant in Chicago. Nellie filed for divorce in 1899, receiving what the Fort Wayne News described at the time as heavy alimony and the custody of her children. Mamie and her husband also divorced at the same time. That article, published in April 1900 on the occasion of Frank and Mamie's wedding, which immediately followed their divorce from their previous spouses, noted that the news, although of a sensational character, will not surprise Fort Wayne social circles. Despite the salacious, for the time, gossip, the Fees enjoyed active, prominent roles in society while living in Ohio, then in Texas, and finally in Little Rock. Contemporary newspaper reports show them hosting and attending various social events. A fourth birthday party for Edward in June 1910 included 50 children as guests. According to the Daily Arkansas Gazette, the lawn was beautifully arranged, games were played, and a delicious birthday luncheon was served in the late afternoon when a large frosted birthday cake was cut. The paper noted that the lawn of the Fee Residence, 1900 Broadway, is an ideal spot for an entertainment of this nature. Numerous garden swings, the ice cream cone vendor, and dainty lunches and paper napkins will add to the enjoyment of the little guests. In January 1912, Frank and Mamie hosted a dinner party where there were six tables and guests would change tables as each course was presented. In 1913 December, the family presented a Christmas church play called Castle Christmas, which the Arkansas Democrat described as a most charming affair. The three fee children who appeared in it played the King of Christmas, a bottle of ink, the spirit of Christmas, and one half of a pair of mittens, respectively. During this time, Frank and Mamie welcomed two more children, Thomas, born in 1910, and Patricia, born in 1915. According to the website Abandoned Arkansas, there were rumors that Thomas may have been fathered by a caretaker and groundskeeper for the fees who lived in the property's carriage house. As the site describes, Thomas was the only child of the five fee children whose room wasn't a large upstairs bedroom, but was instead behind the library on the sun porch. Even more telling, was that he was sent to California to live prior to enrolling in high school, where he remained after graduation and into adulthood. More unusual circumstances surrounded the Fee family, especially when it came to death and loss. Frank Sr. was only 62 when he died of a heart attack in Battle Creek, Michigan in January 1923. His death was announced in an obituary in the Arkansas Democrat titled, Nationally Known Lumberman Dies. 
and Frank's body was brought to the fee house before his burial. Eight years later, Mamie died at age 58 from injuries sustained in a horrific accident. She was drying her hair over the stove one night when her nightgown caught fire. A maid attempted to put the flames out with a blanket, but Mamie was badly burned. An account from her granddaughter Patricia describes what followed Mamie's injury. According to her granddaughter Patricia Tucker, after being burned, Mamie would tell no one. Edward was to be married at that time, and she did not want to spoil his marriage plans, so she kept her plight to herself. After the wedding, she got so bad she did go to a hospital for the burns, but it was too late. From these injuries, she died. Though this account came from a family member, the dates don't exactly line up. Edward married Geraldine Miller in May 1930, over a year before Mamie's death. Another piece of Patricia's account, though, might explain why Mamie was hesitant to seek medical care. The granddaughter went on to explain, She was a good Christian scientist. Many of the time she would call someone to pray that I would get well. Maybe that, too, was a reason she didn't go to the hospital sooner. Christian Science, or the Church of Christ Scientist, is a belief system founded in 1879 in Boston. At the time of Mamie's death, just about half a century later, it was the fastest-growing religion, with nearly 270,000 members. One of the religion's core tenets is that malady and disease should be treated through prayer, not through medicine. Whatever her reasons for not immediately seeking treatment for her burns, Mamie passed away from her injuries sustained in the accident. Less than a year later, in October 1932, 28-year-old Catherine died after drinking poison in the fee house. Though she drank poison acid to be precise, Catherine's death was ruled accidental, as it was believed that she unintentionally drank poison, believing that she was picking up a bottle of headache medicine. In her obituary in the Arkansas Gazette, it's noted that physicians said she died from effects of an acid, which relatives said she evidently picked up by mistake in her haste to obtain relief from the headache. Patricia was nine at the time of her mother's death, and she remembers what happened that day very differently. According to Abandoned Arkansas, she remembers her mother and uncles arguing about who was to blame for the recent death of their mother. Catherine blamed her brother and claimed he had lost the faith. In the midst of this argument, Catherine deliberately went upstairs and found the acid and drank it intentionally as she was standing above the family on the staircase, causing her almost immediate and horrific death. Though the family immediately drove her to the hospital after seeing her drink the poison, she died within 10 minutes of arrival. A decade later, another of the Fee children would meet an untimely end. In October 1942, 36-year-old Edward died in a plane crash in Dallas, Texas during his army service. The bomber in which he and five other service members were flying, according to the St. Louis Star and Times, struck a radio station antenna guy wire. Edward's cause of death was listed as crushed in an aeroplane wreck. The Fee family sold the home in 1939 or 1940 to Audria Hart, a widow who lived there with her two widowed sisters and their mother, Virginia Fraley, who passed away in the home in May 1966 at age 102. Audria lived in the home until her death in 1993, but she was also attached to a terrible accident in the home. According to Abandoned Arkansas, Audria had an extremely unlucky visitor. While in the home, the woman somehow fell over backward from the top staircase landing and landed in the foyer, breaking her neck and dying instantly. This account, though, isn't substantiated by other sources. The fee house sat, abandoned and decaying, from Audria's death until the current owners, Drew and Mark, purchased it in 2019. They currently live in the carriage house while they renovate the main house. 
which they intend to turn into a nonprofit that provides accommodations for post-operative transplant patients while they receive care from a nearby hospital. When Drew and Mark bought the house, though, they didn't know it was haunted, and the fee house, you might not be surprised to learn, is very haunted. The pair began to suspect something paranormal was happening in the home when they started sensing unusual happenings. They would hear unexplained sounds like boxes being dropped in other rooms and feeling the presence of a man around the house and unsurprisingly, the presence of a woman on the stairs. Doors on the second floor of the house are said to move on their own, often shutting themselves when left open. Now, paranormal researchers investigate the space, sometimes offering ghost tours. Investigators have captured EVPs of someone saying, welcome in the house, and of an unseen man in the library saying, I'm right behind you. One ghost hunter, Tyra Clark of the Arkansas X-Files, claims to have seen a child's ghost by the house's main staircase, which identified itself to her as Edward Fee. She has also picked up voices saying, he's in the attic and help us, we are lost. Another investigator claims to have heard mysterious footsteps in the house, while two others reported feeling extremely short of breath in the attic, as well as experiencing cold sensations, lack of feeling in their legs, and being touched or pinched by something unseen. To dive deeper into these hauntings, I thought it best to talk to one of the owners himself. Drew Council Short is joining us next, and he's going to tell us all about the wild experiences he's had since purchasing the fee house, and why the heck he wanted to buy a rundown haunted house anyway. That is coming up after the break. I am sitting here with none other than Drew Council Short, who is the owner of the Fee House and has had many an experience and figured, hey, you are probably the best person to speak with about what goes on in the house now. So thank you for joining me. Sure. Thanks for having me. It's nice to hear your voice again. You know, we spent uh, multiple days at the house filming Kindred Spirits, gosh, last summer, and it was remarkably hot. I remember being very sweaty. (laughs) Very much so. Yeah, I watched that episode. We were kind of chatting about this before. I watched that episode and I'm always like, oh gosh, this was not my finest moment on television. But it was a really cool investigation. So that was worth it. Yeah, there was one moment where I was like, wow, the hair is like soaked with sweat stuck to my forehead. And it's like, that is a bad shot. (laughs) I feel like I've learned that whenever we are shooting television, it's either remarkably hot or like sub-zero temperatures. It can never just be like a comfortable 68 degree day. It's like, it it never is. It's always one of, it has to be drastic. To be fair, I literally told the production manager and everything. I was like, do not send them here in June, July, or August because there is no air conditioning. And what were they? They're like, hey, we're going to send them in the dead heat of summer. (laughs) They don't actually care about us. It's fine. It's totally fine. So I love the Fee House because it's not like a super well-known location, but the history, and I think it's becoming more well-known for sure. The history is so fascinating to me. And we've been through that already. So I need to ask you, like, why did you buy that house? (laughs) So we came here because my husband's family is from this area. And so I was like, you know, we lived in Nashville, Tennessee at the time. And I was like, I could live in an area like this, you know, where the house is located in the historic governor's mansion area. And then I saw this house 
and the yard was not mowed, the trees were not trimmed. It was a disaster of a house. And we pulled in the driveway because I saw the for sale sign. We pulled in the driveway and I was like, I will move to Little Rock, Arkansas if I can have this house. <laughs> and so I'd not been inside. I had no idea what the inside looked like. I had no idea of what the carriage house inside of that looked like. So he was like, really? And I was like, yes, really. So we came back like a week later to meet with a real estate agent and to tour the house. And we toured like, I don't know, like 15, 18 houses in like two days. And this was the last house that we stopped at. Although this was the first house I wanted to see. So we stopped at this one. It was like, almost like I was being deterred from this house. And I was like, no, this is the one I want. When I went inside, it just felt like the home kind of gets you a hug and like an embrace and like a warm welcome, like, oh, you're home, you know, that kind of feeling. And so I walked in it and that's what I felt. And I was like, this is it. This is the one I want. Now, mind you, the house was completely filled with junk. Yeah. I mean, like 60 yards of debris is what came out of that house. As you saw, there's still the one room upstairs that's got a lot in it just because that floor is not stable and we haven't gotten to get all that taken care of yet. But other than that, the house is obviously cleaned out and it just felt like home to me. You know, I hear that a lot from people who buy houses like that. Like they'll go in and it doesn't matter what kind of shape it's in, you know, what deters many other people kind of attracts them. Like it's almost like you are there to save it. There's just some reason it's faded. You're supposed to be there and and nothing can take that away at that point. And so I think that's interesting. You saw so many houses before and I feel that it is a gorgeous, gorgeous home. And I totally get that. I feel like at some point that's going to happen to me. Now, when did you find out that it was haunted though? So I had this recurring dream after I, we had put the offer in on the house. We went back to Tennessee to wrap up the sale of our house, so on and so forth. And I kept having this reoccurring dream about the stairwell in the house. And there was this woman that was like on the stairwell. And in the dream, I was in the upstairs bedroom, which is Mamie's master bedroom, which is the front room once you get up the stairs. And when I was in that room and I was doing something like making the bed or I can't even remember in the dream what I was doing. But when I was up there doing this, I kept seeing this woman on the stairwell. Hmm. And I was like, why is she looking at me? And you know how the stairwell is, like the banisters, like they're short, but like you can kind of like see from like when you come up the stairwell and you get to the first landing and then you start up the longer section of the stairwell. And she was on there and she was looking at me in that room. And I was like, why is she staring at me? This is so creepy. And I had this dream like seven or eight times. And it's like something is going on in this house. And I, I don't know what it is. I couldn't tell you what it is. Because at the time, I had not spent much time in the house other than just walking into it to see it, you know. And so I had this dream. I was like, something is going on. Well, we closed on it July 1st of 2019. On July 15th was when I was seeing pictures of the family from a previous owner who had owned it. And when I saw the picture of one of the daughters, I was like, oh, oh that was woman. your person. Those are the eyes that I remember oh. seeing in that dream. And yeah. she was like, well, what dream? And so I told her about it. And I was like, has anything weird or strange or, you know, happened to you in the house when you lived there? So she was like, well, I wasn't going to say anything, but there was this one time. And she, they had one like very small encounter which I don't think that they really processed or were really thinking about it. 
but they most certainly didn't want to scare me. But I was like, I already know something is here anyway. Right. Um, there's something going on. I mean, it bothered me, but it didn't really bother me. I just didn't know the entire history of the house until I really started digging in to some of the research that she had already done. Right. So yeah, the stairwell plays an integral part of the history of that house. So that's so interesting. And I firmly believe in the idea that sometimes we are visited in our dreams because like I've had even relatives appear in my dreams that have passed. And there's always something different about those dreams. I always have that moment where I'm like, I know I'm being visited by someone who has passed away. And so she had a message for you, apparently. <laughs> so did that make you nervous at all the idea of buying a haunted house like that? So I will tell you, after I met with the previous owner and learned some more of the history, it, like every time I walked into the house and saw that something had been moved, I would always run to my husband and be like, baby, did you move this? And he'd be like, yes, I moved it. And I was like, <laughs> just making sure. So like, I think I was probably more on edge about everything than I previously was. Even before like knowing everything, I just knew something was going on in there, but it didn't really like sink in until I was like, oh my goodness, did he move this? Did she move this? Like who moved this? So that's when I started to get a little bit nervous until I could kind of figure out what was what who was what, and like really kind of dig into like investigating it myself. Right. I do encounter um, a lot of people like that when I'm investigating locations who are kind of on red alert because things have happened and then they start like, you know, analyzing everything. So you've had the dream, you're now looking firmly for paranormal activity. What was like your next major experience in the house? So the next major experience was Ginger Beck, who you got to meet. She had reached out to me to write an article about the house for Abandoned Arkansas. So she was like, can I come over and like, you know, you can give me a tour and I'm going to take some photos. I'm going to write this article. And I was like, absolutely. So she came over and that was September of 2019. And we were walking through the house and she was taking pictures of everything. And she texts me later that day and said, hey, not one of my pictures that I took came out. She's like, it's like someone has just like taken their hand to a painting and smeared it. Yeah, that's bizarre. She took like 150 to 300 pictures. Yeah, very bizarre. That's a lot of pictures. And it was like an hour and a half that we spent in there. So I was like, that's really strange because I took like five pictures in there that day. Mm -hmm. So I went back and looked at those five pictures and sure enough, every single one of mine were blurry. That's weird. So that's really interesting. Like it could be, you know, equipment issues with one, but when you have both doing the exact same thing, that seems very strange. And so what's kind of just like the regular going on? What happens there on a regular basis, would you say? After we filmed, you guys came and filmed Kindred Spirits. Two months later, Mark and I were out working in the yard and we have all the trumpet vine that grows like really close to the house. And so the only way to get rid of this is to like burn it with like a torch. Mm -hmm. So we were out there and we were burning the trumpet vine. And we were being super cautious because I was like, we have to be because the house is all wood and it's a tinderbox. Yeah. And if it catches fire, it's just going to go up in flames. So we're out there and we're burning this trumpet vine. I've got the hose. I'm spraying like where he's burned to like make sure that we're not setting the house on fire that day. And what did we do? We said, No, you didn't. Yes, we did. And so this lady pulls up and she says, 
hey, your house is smoking. And the, the torch is so loud that I'm like, what is she saying? Like, I can't hear her. And so I told my husband, I was like, Mark, turn that off. And so he turns it off. And I said, what did you say? And she said, your house is smoking. And I turn around and sure enough, there's smoke coming from the house. I said, baby, go inside and see if it's on fire. And he runs out and he's like, yes, it's on fire. So what do I do? I run in there with the garden hose. It was just like one wall between the front parlor and the dining room. That's where the flames were. So I rip into the wall. Like We're like being like heroic firemen at this point. And we're like ripping drywall off the wall and trim off the wall so I can get in there and fight the fire with my garden hose. So I'm doing all that. The firemen are coming. There's too much smoke. I can't stay in there any longer because at this time I'm still in kidney failure. And I couldn't stay in there anymore. So I wedged the hose in the wall and the firemen come in and like within seconds they put it out. So there's not a lot of damage from the fire, but there is damage. So after that is when obviously activity really, really picked up. Hmm. I think that that probably just unsettled everything. Like everything had kind of started to calm down. You know, all the spirits, as you say, were like in this place of, learning how to communicate with each other through us as people here on earth. And so since then, it's just been crazy. It's almost like the fire made them revert back to like not wanting to communicate again or something. So I'm not quite sure if that has to do with like Mamie's gown catching on fire or if that kind of like made them relive what happened to them. I need to probably dig into that more and see if I can get some responses from them. So for those that don't know, a spirit box is a device that sweeps radio waves and creates white noise. And we believe that spirits can manipulate that white noise to create words. And we used to just listen to it, just kind of having it sitting there. We'd say, hey, did that say red? Or did that say, you know, hello? But we felt like we were kind of influencing what we thought the answers were saying based on the situation we were in. So we started using them by putting um, a blindfold on so we couldn't see the reaction of people in the room and putting on noise-canceling headphones. And then whoever wasn't listening would ask questions. And so whoever's listening has no idea what questions are being asked. And so what Adam and I did in the fee house is we both went under, as we call it, where we both put on blindfolds and noise-canceling headphones and each listened to a spirit box and just said whatever we heard. And what happened was it really sounded like mother and daughter started having a conversation. And we had no idea if it was working. We looked at the crew and we're like, did that work? And they looked at us like their jaws were just like hitting the floor. And in our estimation, it sounds like those two were not aware of each other in the house until that moment. And they had this very strange conversation where I think Mamie said, do you remember? And then her daughter finished the purple flowers. And she was like, yes, like it was the weirdest thing. (laughs) If you haven't seen the episode, I highly recommend um, you go watch it. So we've kind of felt like that might be helping a bit. So you feel like now maybe the fire just kind of like switched that energy back to where they were before. So I don't know that it maybe just switched back immediately. I just know that for a while there, after you guys left, she was not as present as she had Mm. been in the past. Mm. And it didn't concern me because she's very attached to me, I would say. So I can feel her when she's like 
mirror. Mm-hmm. So I just noticed that after that happened, that she kind of just went back to doing the same things. And maybe they're comfortable. And I've talked with Chip Coffee about some of this as well. And so like we've kind of, I've talked with him about like what could be happening mm-hmm. with that. And he said, you know, there are a lot of theories about people having to relive spirits after they pass that they have to like relive everything leading up for like the day that they died um, as punishment Mm. in the afterlife. And I was like, that's crazy. So I'm thinking that sometimes Catherine gets stuck in the same routine. She'll go up the stairs. She'll do whatever upstairs. She'll come down the stairs. She'll walk into the foyer, into the family parlor, over to the fireplace. And then she does something. And when she goes back upstairs, a lot of people are just like, oh, when they investigate, they're like, she's a residual you know, spirit. She's not intelligent. But the thing is, is like you can break her cycle, which I think you guys even experienced when you guys were here filming. When you say she does her usual loop, do you mean you hear her footsteps? Are you seeing her up there? Like, what's that experience? I can actually just feel it, the vibrations of like someone walking in the room. Mm-hmm. I can feel that. And on occasion, you'll hear like a tap, like going up the stair. Well, like while she's going up or you'll hear a stair creak. So there's just all these like little things that kind of happen. Yeah. And as you know, I told you guys too, my husband's the only one who's actually seen something with his own eyes, which was in here in our carriage house where we live. So I feel like eventually I'll be able to probably convince the spirits that are there, Catherine, Frank, Mamie, to make themselves visible to us. Right. What did your husband see exactly? So it was around Memorial Day and we were sitting on the front porch and the rockers out on the front porch of the carriage house and we were sitting out there talking and he said baby there is a woman standing in the window right behind you Mm. and by the time I turned around to look he's like she's already gone Mm. he basically described Mamie and she looked sad and I said she probably looks sad because it's Memorial Day and like her son Edward died in the military plane crash and all that. So he saw that. And then, of course, there's been some experiences in the house. Because remember, my husband is the one who's like, they're not real unless I can see them. Right. And so I was like, don't say that. Because like, they're here and they're going to hear that. And then they're going to mess with you. <laughs> so you hear voices too sometimes, right? Yeah. So I have heard audibly in my ear, Frank, who or at least who I believe is Frank. When we first moved in, redid the carriage house. I was in the big house, had some people here investigating, and there was a news crew here. Mm -hmm. And that news crew was in there and they were taking a picture from the foyer through the the family parlor into that back hallway. And so I just jumped into the doorway of the kitchen just to get out of the shot. So I was like, no one needs to see this mess. (laughs) Um, But I jump in the kitchen and as I walk back out of the kitchen in that doorway into that back hallway, I hear a male deep voice in my ear saying, I hate you. And I turned to where I hear the voice and there's nothing, no one. And so I'm like in a panic. I'm like, who hates me? Like, what is going on? So I literally search the entire bottom floor and there's, there's nobody on, there's no one in the house. They're all upstairs. They're all on the second floor, third floor. I walk outside and I was like, did someone just come in the house and and say something to me? Because there was people outside, out back. And I was like, did someone just come in here and whisper in my ear? And they're like, what are you talking about? 
That's disconcerting. I think a lot of people would have been like, okay, goodbye. I'm done with this house. So did that make you feel unwelcome at that moment? Um, it made me concerned. But at the same time, I was like, you know what? I was like, I get that he's angry. This is all something new. He's comfortable with however his afterlife is. And he doesn't want anything to be changed or anything to happen to this house. Or maybe he was thinking they're going to come in and destroy the house. People have already come in here and destroyed things. Right. So I've continued to, to work with him and say, hey, we're not here to harm the house. I said, like, you're a well-known person in your time. Like, There's no reason why your legacy can't continue into the future. We want to restore this house the way that you remember it or make it more beautiful than it was. I was like, that is our only goal. And so there was a time there when all of that happened, when I'd be out in the yard working and we started working on cleaning up that patio off the kitchen. And I would come in the house and I would say, Frank, get out here and look out this window and watch how hard I'm working to save this house. So everything had kind of calmed down eventually by mid 2020. I mean, that's what I always tell people, you know, talk to them like you would talk to a living person right in front of you, you know, their understanding isn't different just because they're dead. I think some people, it's their instinct to talk to ghosts like they're three-year-olds. And it's like, no, they're just a person right in front of you that you cannot see. And sometimes you have to reason with them, uh, especially if they're doing things like that. So what is your ultimate plan for the house? The carriage house is beautiful. You, You guys have done a wonderful job with it. What's your plan for the actual main house? So as you know, and I've told you, if anyone was watching the episode Kindred Spirits, we did talk about a bed and breakfast in the episode. However, Frank got sick in 1920. And when that happened, basically he was going into kidney failure. He ultimately died of congestive heart failure because water built up around his heart. And he died of a heart attack in 1923. So kind of to honor like all of his life's work his legacy, his everything. There was no such thing as dialysis back in 1920 to 1923. Dialysis came along 1946, if I'm not mistaken. And so basically I want to make, and now that I went into kidney failure, which is kind of what I was concerned about having you guys here anyway, I was like, I went into kidney failure a hundred years after Frank. This is really strange. What's going on? I want to kind of honor him with making the fee house a place where people with kidney failure that have gotten transplants can come and stay here if they live further outside uh, Little Rock. So make it more of like a, a place where people have a free place to stay, a nonprofit, a free place to stay. People can come here with their care partners. They'll have a room, a bathroom. They'll have clean sheets. It'll be just a nice place where someone can come in for six weeks and recover. Oh, yeah, that's well, that's lovely. That's a really great idea. And I think that is the perfect way to honor his legacy and the family's history, um, in addition to what you've gone through and can relate to. So I think that is such a great idea. Well, thanks. I'm excited. Yeah. Right now, people can investigate it, right? You're scheduling private investigations. So if people do want to come and investigate, if they want to do that, how do they get in touch with you? They can either email me directly at drew at the feehouse.com or if they go to the website, because now we've transferred from the feehouse.com to a nonprofit website. So it's the feehouse.org. That's where you can find out more information about the house. You can book uh, your team investigations there if you want to do that. 
There's also the phone number should be on the website for the house. You can always call me off that number. Uh, it will come to my cell phone and I'll be happy to answer any questions that they may have. Just there's a lot of information on the feehouse.org. Well, that's awesome. It's really been lovely chatting with you. I'm glad to hear that things are doing better with your health and everything. And um, like I said, I, I love hearing stories about the house and I love what your plans are for the future. So thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. The Fee House is a location that baffles me. It questions everything I assumed I knew about the paranormal. How could the spirits of a mother and daughter coexist in the same space yet have no idea the other was there? What is it that we do not know or understand about the afterlife? Sure, a lot of self-declared mediums tell me they have the answers, but none of what they tell me corresponds with what I've actually experienced. As a mother, a sister, a daughter, it's impossible to imagine being in such close proximity to one of my closest family members for decades and not know they were there. But this is yet another reason why I do what I do and why you listen to accounts such as these. I don't expect to understand how the afterlife works in this lifetime, but at some point, I will understand. We all will understand. I'm Amy Bruni, and this was Haunted Road. Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Menke. Haunted Road is hosted and written by me, Amy Bruni. Additional research by Taylor Hagerdorn. The show is edited and produced by Rima Elkayali and supervising producer Josh Thane. And executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.